Hey everybody, just a quick note before we get into the show today. We discuss a few court cases in this episode that contain some mature content. We don't get into anything graphic, but if you're listening to this and you have kids that are within earshot, you might want to hit pause and save this episode for a time when they're not around to ask questions you're not ready to answer. Okay, here's the show. Oh, hello. I didn't see you there. I was just relaxing here in my study, enjoying some brandy and sifting through some of the letters we've received regarding the show. There's quite a volume to get through, and unfortunately we won't be able to answer everyone's queries. Some of the topics we're saving for a later date, and some are too obscure to interest the general listener. And others, quite frankly, are just over our heads. Uh, Take this one, for example. Ulrich in the Netherlands asks, Dear, you've got it all wrong. Long-time listener, first-time feedbacker. I had a question. Whose nihilist rage would win in a fight between the Frederick Nietzsche and Marvel's The Hulk? If the Hulk looked into the void, would the void look back into the Hulk? Is Nietzsche's secret that he is always angry? P.S. More of the South African guy, please. Or this question from Ingrid of New Jersey. Dear sirs, do you recommend a particular brand of gin for the most solipsistic gin and tonic? And finally, Lieutenant Commander Hutchins of the 7th United States Marine Regiment wants to know, Why did it have to be Snaggletooth? Dear God, why? I highly doubt it, but maybe we'll find out the answer to these questions on today's show. Hey everyone, welcome to You Got It All Wrong, a philosophy podcast for handsome people like you. I'm Chad Allen. I'm Paco Allen. And I'm America's sweetheart, Mark Sanders. So it sounds like Mark's been rifling through our listener mail. It's been stacking up for a while and we haven't had time to answer your questions. So today we're just going to take a few of them and try to get to the bottom. Um, Before we get into that, I wanted to clarify for the listener whose question we read at the top of the show, Mark is Australian and not South African. Uh, Frankly, I think it's a little embarrassing, dear listener, that you can't tell the difference between the two accents. Uh, With that out of the way, uh, let's pick a question out of the box. Who's going to read the first one? Oh, I think it's you, Chad. Oh, I'm going to read the first one. Yeah, okay. Let me read the first one. Um, uh, So in response to our show on compatibilism, free will, and determinism, Lee from Michigan asks, is there such a thing as an evil person? Full stop. I'm going to say yes. Uh, Who is this evil person? (laughs) Uh, What, you want me to like give you an example? Yeah, well... The question is, is there such a thing as an evil person? And you seem to know who the evil person is. Well, I mean, the answer that everyone wants to give here is Hitler. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, man, you just circled around <laughs> to the back end of this conversation. But usually Hitler is the answer that somebody, or or at least the 
the response that, that somebody gives to anyone who tries to argue that there isn't an evil person. And then you say, well, okay, well, all those, the, all that rationale you just gave to describe how there are no evil people, well, what about Hitler? Right. Uh, because if you're going to try to come up with an explanation or a rationale for the fact that uh, that no one is responsible for uh, an evil action, then you have to put Hitler in that group too. And that just makes everybody want to say, yeah, no, you're right, they're evil people. Are you saying I just won the argument? Um, yeah, knockout blow in the first 45 seconds. It's like Mike Tyson from the 80s. <laughs> well, so I think first, <laughs> I think one of the first things um, uh, that, that like comes to mind with this question for me um, is trying to differentiate between evil people and evil actions. And obviously those two things are tied together, but... Uh, you know, if the definition of an evil person is somebody who undertakes evil actions, then I think for me, the answer is yes, I would say there are evil people. However, uh, the question that I don't have a solid answer to is whether these evil people who by definition have undertaken evil actions are responsible for their evil actions. I think that's probably more the root of what this question is getting at is not whether or not there are evil people, but whether or not these evil people or people who've committed evil actions are responsible for those actions, and therefore, are they, at the root of it, evil people? Right. So is that the question you want to answer? Is, are people who commit evil actions evil people? Or are people who commit evil actions responsible for those actions? That's the question you want to answer and not the question that the the reader, that the listener actually asked. Well, I mean, I think that the question that, (laughs) yeah, I think the question that the the listener (laughs) asked is, is getting, is getting at this other question. Okay. I mean, I think if, if the, if, if you just want to say like, are there evil people? I mean, I guess we can go into what we all think the definition of an evil person is, but I think that's a fairly easy question to ask and i think what what you know the the question that the listener asked via email uh you know there was a bit of a back and forth and it was really kind of rooted in biology and how the brain works and kind of this question of you know whether or not the structure of the brain itself as a physical thing causes people to commit crimes or do evil things and if it's just if your if your behavior is dictated by the structure of your brain then are you really responsible for your actions and can you really call someone evil if you know the tumor in their brain made them do it so to speak right and that's why this kind of came this this question was in response to our our episode on free will and determinism and so that's um yeah that's kind of getting to the heart of the matter so yeah Let's talk about tumors. Tumors. Isn't that a line from a Schwarzenegger movie? <laughs> it's not a tumor. Um, yeah, no. One of the one of the best Schwarzenegger movies. I mean, I think if you're going to rank Schwarzenegger movies, the top two, that's number two after Last Action Hero. It goes Last Action Hero, oh, what? Kindergarten Cop, what? Uh, twins. Wait, are you going from bottom to top? No, these are the best Schwarzenegger movies. <laughs> And <laughs> this is not a conversation we've had before. Uh, <laughs> no, nah, I'm kidding. Those are those are all at the bottom. Um, okay, but Jeez, yeah. So I, I think there there's <laughs> there's a number of cases that uh, that have been um, publicized pretty heavily 
regarding crimes committed by people who uh, at some point during the investigation are found to have brain tumors or in some cases uh, had brain tumors and had surgery to remove those tumors and either the tumor or the surgery to remove the tumor uh, radically changed their behavior um, and in the defense's argument caused them to commit a crime. Right. So the question becomes, is somebody responsible for a crime when it was a defect or an injury to their brain that caused the criminal behavior? Yeah, and there are a few famous cases that kind of illustrate this, some recent and others a little bit further back. There's a guy named David Eagleman um, who's written about this a fair bit, and we'll put some links to his articles in the show notes, but he's also done a, a really great episode with the guys at Radio Lab about this. And so he talks about this more recent case about the guy who um, was convicted for child molestation. And I don't talk, you may remember the chronology a little bit better than me. Yeah, there's two different cases. And the one the one that he talks about on Radio Lab. It's it's interesting because there's these two big cases that he talks about, but they both kind of have a slightly different order of events. The one that he talks about in Radio Lab, which is from an episode called Blame, which is great. And if you're interested in this topic and interested in kind of some of the the topics that fall out of this, like how we uh, determine or lay blame for people's actions and kind of how some of these things, these these ideas that we're going to talk about roll out in the criminal justice system. This is an awesome episode, but... But don't listen to that podcast instead of listening to our podcast. Now, listen to our podcast first. Right. And then only listen to that episode. Don't subscribe to it or rate it or review it. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and then delete it from your phone after you listen to it. <laughs> uh, listen to it on their website. Don't subscribe to it from <laughs> iTunes. Don't download it on iTunes. Don't even touch Stitcher. Um those guys are those guys are big enough without us hyping it. But yeah. Anyways, exactly. the the specific case that they talk about in that episode um, uh, involves a guy who had seizures. He had epileptic seizures, and um, he had surgery a couple times in his life to um, to try to remove the part of his brain that was causing the seizures. Um, and he had this done once, and it seemed to cure him, get rid of all the seizures. He lived for like a decade without any met a woman, fell in love, started having the seizures again, and they kind of both decided, you know, look, before we get married, we need to deal with this. And he had this successful surgery in the past, so they both saw no risk in in, in him having this surgery again. So he went in, had the surgery, everything seemed fine, but then slowly he started to develop these compulsive behaviors, compulsive eating, so he would just like insatiable appetite for eating. He was a musician, and he would sit down and play the the same song on his piano for eight or nine hours straight. Uh, he just had all these these bizarre compulsive behaviors that developed, you know, pretty quickly after having the surgery. And and one of those areas that he had compulsion in was also sex. Over time, not only did that like manifest in wanting to have sex with his wife all the time, but he was eventually arrested by the FBI for collecting and buying child pornography on his computer. And, you know, he basically, he, you know, as, as soon as his doctor who had been treating him for 20 years found out about this, 
you know, he says immediately he knew what had happened. He had recommended the surgery the first time. He had recommended the surgery the second time and and had this huge wave of guilt because he felt somewhat responsible for this guy's behavior because he he knew in his mind that it was the surgery that caused that basically removed yeah the part of his brain that limited your kind of base desires things like appetite sex drive yeah etc and um he testified in court and 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 argued that um this guy wasn't to blame for the crimes he committed that he had that that there was no way he could have controlled um, those desires because they had removed the part of his brain that limited the tendency for excess in those particular areas. Yeah. And the other case that Eagleman writes about is really interesting too, like in a sort of different way. So it's about a guy who develops an interest in child pornography. They discover that he has a tumor uh, in, in I think in some same part of the brain that kind of regulates um, desire um, and impulse control, and they remove the tumor, and his compulsive uh, desire to collect child pornography dissipates, and he kind of gets back to his normal life, and then those desires come back like a year later. Uh, he goes back into the hospital, and they discover that there's like a part of the tumor that they didn't remove that started to expand again. They remove it, and then all of his impulses go away again. So it's an even more kind of definitive, like, when this tumor is there, he has these impulses, and when it's not, he doesn't. But same basic narrative. Yeah. I mean, I I, I feel like those narratives are just too, you know, the, the order of events is different, but you've got a guy who has that impulse. They find a tumor, remove it, the impulse goes away, and then you've got a guy who doesn't have those impulses, they go in and do surgery, remove part of his brain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other interesting thing too, is that uh, there's an actual, so these are two instances where, um, well, well, I guess there's one instance where, uh, they've gone in and done surgery and then kind of like artificially produced, uh, unknown disorder that can exist naturally. So, in both these cases, this one guy had a tumor. In this other case, they did surgery on someone and removed part of his brain. But then there are also people who just have malformations in that part of their brain who have like a a, a really long studied documented uh, disorder called Kluver Busey syndrome, um, which is different than Gary Busey syndrome, where you just kind of like get crazy <laughs> later on in your acting career. But crazy, awesome, Kluver yeah. Busey. <laughs> yeah, um, you do a couple awesome movies. Uh, for some reason, you play an albino martial artist in a Lethal Weapon movie, and then you just go batshit crazy. I'm putting yeah. a vote in for, uh, for for title suggestions at this point now, based on Gary Busey. Just just, just <laughs> let it not be known. Gary Busey syndrome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, but but so so they they've studied this for a long time. They've studied it in humans. They've studied it um, in monkeys. And it has all of the same, uh, you know, uh, 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 primates, people, or, 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 or monkeys or apes with this syndrome all have the same defect in that part of their brain. And it produces all the same kind of um, side effects that, that these people in these two cases, in these two criminal cases, um, suffered from. Um, 
you know, so okay. It, so what does this have to do with blame and responsibility for evil? Well, well can I can I make a, a, a counterpoint there? So is the is the state that yes. we're making that a, a, a properly working brain is uh, is beneficial and uh, uh, that brain is a is an active and engaged part of uh, that that uh, that community where the person lives, but it's a malformed brain which uh, you can draw conclusions could be resulting in um, evil quote unquote evil behavior. Are there are there other instances where there's there's a tumor that that creates um, the user you know creates situations where the user is like more charitable and helpful and, um, and and courteous, but we don't we don't cut those brains up because there's no need to try to try to fix something. Um, no, I I definitely think that if if you looked into it, you would find that there are you know, certain parts of the brain that are associated with things that we would consider positive societal behaviors and that some people have, you know, different, you know, whatever, different, that part of their brain is structured differently than the general population. I don't have any of those off the top of my head because we're, trying to answer this question about evil acts yeah. but yeah exactly what well, that's what i'm saying like it could be the fact that there's there's abnormalities in both directions just that some are, are more studied because they're uh they're, you know, scientists and doctors are trying to trying to help people and there's less of a demand to stop people being more charitable yeah for sure i i mean I, again i'm not a neuroscientist obviously but i don't it would it would be hard to imagine that that's not the case yeah maybe mother Teresa had a giant tumor <laughs> Um, so, you know, I think the, the, one of the other interesting things about this topic is, is how, you know, obviously we've talked about a couple of these court cases, but I think it's interesting to look at how advancements in the understanding of how the brain works and in neuroscience are starting to impact, um, the criminal justice system. And, and obviously, philosophy and uh, justice and the legal system are in many cases heavily connected. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's, that's the purpose of a lot of aspects of philosophy is try to try to understand, uh, you know, what are good acts? Uh, what is, what are moral acts, you know, trying to understand uh, ethics and, and morality in a general sense. Um, but, there's been a, a huge rise of this type of neuroscience being introduced into court cases because one way to argue this is that if someone is going to enter a defense of I have a brain injury or I have a brain tumor or I went in to have surgery for some uh, epileptic seizure that I was having and the doctor cut the part of my brain out that that stops me from being a serial killer, like that's not my fault, right? But what's the difference between an accident or a surgery that somebody had or an quote-unquote abnormal thing like a tumor and then somebody who's just born with that part of their brain, like abnormally small or missing or whatever, right? Like, why is the person who suffered some kind of accident or injury uh, 
less culpable for this evil thing that they've done than the person who is just born without it. Like, why is that their fault, right? And and to take it one step further, I mean, regardless of whether I have an abnormality or not, my actions are just a result of things happening in my brain, neurons firing and chemical receptors being activated. And so, you know, why should I be responsible for anything that I do? I mean, I, you know, the same thing's happening in my brain that's happening in the in the guy's brain who has the tumor, right? I'm just like, I, I'm my actions are just sort of like the the sum total of all of the all of the activity in my brain, which we can't really say. I mean, how do we say that I'm responsible for that? Right, right. Yeah. What happened if you just if you walk past a large electromagnet? <laughs> <laughs> right. Eventually, you like we are right now end up going down the path of trying to figure out if human beings have free will or whether everything is determined and whether or not anybody can be responsible for any of their actions. I just, I think we're at a really interesting point right now in science where the science of the mind and the brain and neurobiology are being introduced into court cases. And at some point, probably in the not too distant future, we're going to have to come to grips in the legal system with the idea of free will, which I don't think has probably ever really been debated in the courts before. Right. Well, and it, you know, to your point, to your earlier point, it's really connected to the idea of blameworthiness. And I think on some level, you know, so one of the things that David Eagleman talks about that's really interesting is he, he actually thinks that we need to sort of like eliminate the concept of blame altogether in our criminal justice system. And that, that we should be much more focused on rehabilitation and on proactively preventing criminal behavior, which we can do because we know that people who have certain kinds of brain abnormalities are probably prone to certain kinds of criminal activities. I don't actually, I'm, I'm taking his way, I'm taking his argument way past what he would say. What, what, what you're saying, it sounds like a profiling. Yeah, which I, it, but I, the reason I say that is because I think it does emerge from his thinking, like if you extend it, you know, because what he talks about is um, we, we need to sort of cast aside this notion of blame and, and not look at this as an issue of punishing people for things that they've done wrong, but we need to figure out what's wrong with their brains so that we can fix it and not have them do it again. But I think it, like one, if you sort of carry that forward where you end up with, where you end up is, well, why don't we just find the people who have those brain abnormalities like now and fix it so that they don't commit those crimes in the first place? Some of the scary or some of the unsettling things that he talks about that that feel like kind of minority or report precognition, you know, pre-crime trying to prevent crimes before they happen is that, you know, what he says is that if you the, – the, the way that parole works right now for things like sex offenders, which is the, the, two, the two cases that we talked about specifically, is that when somebody comes up for parole uh, from a sex crime, they have those people do an interview and they ask them a set of questions about, you know, like, how old were you when this happened? How old was the victim? Were they the same gender? They ask them this huge series of questions. And then they – it's the same set of questions for everybody, and then everybody comes up with a score that comes out of that set of questions. But then what they do is they have somebody who's supposed to be an expert in this field read that report and then make a judgment on whether or not they feel like this person should get parole or not. And that's based on, obviously, whether or not they feel like this person's going to be a repeat offender. 
Well, when you have a human being read that report and make that judgment, the accuracy of whether or not that person is going to commit a crime again, the accuracy of their prediction is about 50-50. You might as well flip a coin to decide if that person gets parole or not. But if you just look at the data, if you just look at the numbers on the scores, that's like 70% accurate. So what he says is, like, take the human factor out of that evaluation and just look at the data. And in fact, if you focused more on the data and made the data more rich, you could have even more accuracy in predicting whether or not that person's going to be a repeat offender. Like if we had data about their brain structure or whatever? Well, data about their brain structure or if you just like made that questionnaire more detailed or asked them more questions and then evaluated which data points uh, were answered yes or no or whatever and then compared that to the number of repeat offenders, like you could build a more detailed, accurate profile. But obviously the extrapolation of... Yeah, but I feel like you're not answering the question about evil person. You're Now you're just answering a question about how do we prevent crimes. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, I think like we we talked a bit about the evil person thing and then you started to go into the pre-crime thing and that that's that's i'm just explaining where that extrapolation comes from that extrapolation comes from if we can if the data proves whether or not somebody's going to be a repeat offender then theoretically we could build a profile both from questionnaire style data but also from mris and fmris and brain scans on whether or not somebody is likely to commit a crime something more objective the answer is no. The answer is no? You answered it right off the top. The answer is no. The answer is no what? No, sir. There's no such thing as an evil person? <laughs> yeah. No, sir. There's no such thing as an evil person. <laughs> no. I mean, I think I think back to what I said at the top of this question is I feel like the question, is there such thing as an evil person, um, is a relatively simple question to answer, but it's not what the question asker was getting at. And I think, yes, if you can define what an evil action is, then you can say, yes, there are definitely evil people. I think the more complicated question that that's leading to from a philosophical standpoint is, can an evil person be held responsible for their evil actions? And so that's about blameworthiness. And blameworthiness only comes with free will And so if we're all just sort of like victims of our brain chemistry, then none of us are blameworthy. And so none of us are evil. It sounds a lot like toilet training a a, a puppy, a a new pet that, you know, when the dog pees on the carpet, (laughs) like it's not the dog isn't being evil. You just got to, you know, help him understand his natural ways and persuade him that there's alternatives. Um, There's no good getting angry. Right. Like he's not he's not he's not an evil dog. Right. We're not worried about whether or not the dog is to blame for peeing on the carpet. Like, that's not really how we think about the problem at all. We just think about how can we prevent the dog from peeing on the carpet again. Yeah. And aren't we all just animals? It definitely heads towards a cross section between determinism and utilitarianism, where society's end goal is to just try to promote the most positive actions and outcomes in society with the understanding that nobody is really in control of their actions and we just need to put into place rules and laws and procedures to prevent as much bad stuff as possible. 
Yeah. And we have to move on to the next question, but I but I I can't help but say one more thing about this, which is I think that that idea that we can jettison the concept of blame and just search for the, the methods for reducing the volume of quote unquote evil acts is a little bit idealistic. I think that concepts of blame and justice and fairness are really deeply embedded in the way that we view the world and that they're not just sort of cultural or historical artifacts and that we're not, it's not going to be just sort of a gradual, you know, evolution in our, in our thinking that, that, that leads us to conclude that, that blame is, is something we can leave behind. I think it's, like I get that argument from a sort of scientific and um, rational perspective, but I don't think that we're really equipped as creatures in the world to let go of those moral concepts. I think they're sort of at the root of a lot of our um, a lot of our feelings about the world and our, and and a lot of the ways that we kind of view the world, like at a really fundamental level. I, and so. I just think it's a I think that, you know, the in order to answer the question, you know, if you go back to the original question and we say, you know, is there such a thing as an evil person and we and we then follow that down the down the rabbit hole of blameworthiness and, and ask ourselves, is anyone blameworthy for their actions? And there's this temptation when you sort of like look at the evidence from a scientific perspective to say, Well, no, like it doesn't make sense to say that anyone is blameworthy. But I think the reality is that it would be really hard for us to get along in our everyday lives, both on an interpersonal level and from a larger sort of social and cultural level, without the concept of blame. Um, so I think we're a long ways off from, I mean, maybe we can implement some of that stuff in the context of criminal justice and the legal system. But I think like getting to the point where you walk away, where you sort of walk around in your everyday life and don't incorporate the concept of blame as part of your view of how you interact with other people is that's a lot harder. Well, just wait for the singularity and you don't have to worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, not that again. I, that's, we have to do an episode on the singularity, but not today. In in the response to that first question, uh, we mentioned utilitarianism, uh, which brings up the next question, uh, which is, uh, what's your favorite color? <laughs> no, no, just kidding. So in response to our show on utilitarianism, John H. from New York, New York writes, I was somewhat disappointed that Thomas Aquinas's DDE was not raised, which isn't really a question, but I think, uh, uh, you know, raises the question of why yeah. wasn't Thomas Aquinas's DDE raised? Yeah, John H., can you please phrase that in the fashion of a question yeah so the dde um which is like the department of dental etiquette defense and efficiency i was pretty sure it was a wrestling move (laughs) (laughs) no that's the ddt oh yeah yeah um okay so dde thomas aquinas's dde is the is the doctrine of double effect sounds like a hitchcock movie (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it does. But I looked it up on Wikipedia and it's not a Hitchcock movie. 
No, I didn't look this up on Wikipedia, listeners. I, I obviously knew all about this uh, before we even got to this episode. <laughs> so the doctrine of double effect um, basically says that sometimes it's okay to perform um, a, a good action that has a side effect uh, of, of something bad happening, even though it wouldn't be okay to do that bad thing as a necessary means to getting the good thing done. I guess it's probably easiest to like give an example of that. Um, so the example that's most often given to illustrate the doctrine of double effect, and this is actually an example that's used a lot um, to sort of examine, it's a thought experiment that's used a lot to kind of examine the principles of utilitarianism. Um, and we didn't talk about it in our show on utilitarianism. And I actually got a couple of questions about that because there's this famous um, tr- what's called the trolley problem. Um, and so the, the, the thought experiment is that you're uh, standing next to some trolley tracks and there's a runaway trolley uh, speeding towards uh, five uh, bystanders standing on the track and they're completely unaware of what's happening. And, you, and it just so happens that you're standing next to a, next to a switch that you can pull and it will divert the trolley onto a second track and save those five people. The catch is uh, that uh, on that other track where you're diverting the trolley, there's a, there's one person standing on that track who is also unaware of what's happening. So if you pull a switch, you're going to save those five people, um, but you're going to kill that one person standing on the other track. And so that's, you know, from a utilitarian perspective, the answer is fairly straightforward, right? I've got to save these five people by killing this one person. Um, and so right. that- in, in our utilitarian episode, we had the, the scenario where there are a bunch of villagers who are lined up who yeah. are going to be shot by the, uh, the colonizing militaristic forces, and they give you the option of shooting one villager uh, to save all 20 villagers' lives. Uh, Mark chose to shoot the one villager, and he claims that he received a medal for it. <laughs> uh, do they also have a trolley a trolley diversion <laughs> murder medal in this case, Mark? Are you, are you also collecting, you yeah, collecting I, that I like medal to, as well? You know, I like to keep my amateur status so I can compete in the Olympics um, uh, for, for that particular event. <laughs> the the utilitarian. utilitarian Olympics? <laughs> um i think (laughs) so what are the other events there they've got they've got they've got the the they've got the villager shooting gallery they've got the trolley switch pull uh what what Uh, else do they have well i think they have the operate on five people to save operate on one person to save the lives of five people event right that one's difficult because you actually have to have surgical (laughs) knowledge so you have to yeah, it's not as easy as just pulling the trigger or flipping a switch. There's the Descartes 100 meters uh, where uh, you always win because you're the only one that exists. <laughs> Nobody else exists, so they can't have beaten you. <laughs> huh, that Well, that's in the utilitarian Olympics. <laughs> oh, yeah, Descartes very active. Yeah, he, he's across the board. <laughs> um. uh, did you, okay. did you meddle in that? where we are now. Uh, okay, so we're we're standing next to the trolley line, trying to decide whether to flip the switch or not. Oh, right. And so, what right. the doctrine of double effect says is that how ugly is the is person on the other you... track? <laughs> what? How ugly is the person on the other track? Uh, 
you know, it doesn't matter. But I guess okay. do you want I can actually do you want it me to does. It does. Okay, the person <laughs> on the other track is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Young Arnold or old Arnold? Ooh. Young. <laughs> uh I pull the lever because he can like clearly like throw that <laughs> yes. trolley off of the track himself. <laughs> okay. I saved all six people. <laughs> and the state of California. Um so the the doctrine of double effect essentially says like look you're permitted to um, pull that lever in order to save those five people because the death of this person, one person on the other track, is like a side effect of your deciding to pull the lever and save those five people. It's not that person dying is not a necessary condition for the for the survival of those other five people but it's just like a, basically a byproduct of that decision. And it's contrasted against the example of say, now this wouldn't work with Arnold Schwarzenegger because he wouldn't be able to pull it off. But if that same person were standing next to you and you could stop the trolley by pushing them in front of it, then that's a scenario in which that person's death is a necessary condition for you saving the other five people because their body literally has to stop the trolley. And so that is something that Aquinas would say, like under the doctrine of double effect, is not permissible because that person's death is not sort of an accidental byproduct of your action. It's it's a their death is a direct result of of your action. Right, right. So in in scenario one, you pull the lever to divert the train, which saves those other people, and then as a side effect, kills this other person. But in scenario B you throw the person in front of the trolley, killing them and stopping the train and then saving these five people. Right. And so it's a sort of, I guess, maybe a somewhat nuanced way to show that even from a, it, to show that there's a, that, that there's a difference between sort of being directly implicit in the death of this person versus having their death be the result of, of, you know, some other action, whether that's the action of a person or a system, but that we, I think there's an intuition that we sort of like feel like the person who pulled the lever is kind of like a less bad person than the person who pushed the bystander onto the track. And I think utilitarians would say, well, that's just garbage. Like you're killing that one person either way. Um, and you should do it to save the lives of the other five people. And you're just kind of fooling yourself if you think that there's a difference. I assume that in both of these scenarios, that there's the assumption that whether you're pulling the that that the that in the in the scenario where you pull the lever, you're aware of the other person on the track who's going to get killed. So yeah, that's right. Like, yeah, the that the, as long as you're aware of that nuance, there's very little difference in my mind between those two scenarios, if any. Because you're making a choice right, and so, to sacrifice one person to save five people. Right. And so a lot of, so, so I think it's interesting because utilitarians are essentially say like, yeah, the, it's this, it's the same thing. Like you're sacrificing one for five and you know, it, it, you're just kidding yourselves if you think that those two scenarios are different. But um, there are a lot, actually a lot of people on the, on the other side of the argument who are not utilitarians 
who also say, yeah, those actions are equivalent and you shouldn't do either one of them. Um, you know, in the same way that pushing the person onto the track to save those other five people kind of very immediately implicates you in the murder of that one person. The same is actually the true of, uh, of flipping the switch. Like you can't escape the fact that that person, that one person is going to die as a result of your actions. Um, and so like, uh, there's a philosopher, uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson, who, um, says that it, this is, I paraphrase, not a direct quote, but she essentially says that it's a, it's a result of, um, inadequate reflection or insufficient emotional engagement, um, to believe that, that, um, flipping the switch is somehow like puts you at a greater distance from, uh, from killing that person than just pushing them onto the track. Yeah. I I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> you think what that Judith Jarvis Thompson's argument is ridiculous? No, I I, I think the uh, I think I think trying to make the argument that flipping the switch is different from pushing the person is ridiculous. Yeah, I tend to think so too. What What did Aquinas say? Uh, so Aquinas says that they are different. So like the doctrine of the double effect is is essentially meant to capture the difference between those two actions. So you know he was in a sense, trying to find a, find a way to explain what he thought were our, our moral intuitions, which is that there is a difference. And so he was kind of saying, well, okay, if there's a difference between these, if, if we feel that one of these things is less acceptable than the other, well, then what's the reason for that? And his answer was, you know, the pushing the guy onto the track is less acceptable than flipping the lever um, because there's this distinction between the person's death being a necessary, um, a, a, a necessary a component of stopping the train versus just sort of an accidental byproduct of stopping the train. So, um, yeah, so Aquinas would have said, yeah, there's a moral distinction between the two and it's okay to pull the lever, but not okay to push the guy under the tracks. And that was in some way, I'm guessing, informed by like Christian doctrine as well at that, at that point in time. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, he was, uh, so yeah, he, so Aquinas was a, a, a theologian and a, a philosopher, um, 13th century, um, Christian thinker. And so, yeah, this was, you know, very much linked to, um, to his, uh, beliefs about Christian theology. Um, and, and again, was just, yeah, him trying to puzzle out like within the framework of a Christian morality, like, why do we see these two things as different? Yeah, he was a he was a saint, Saint Thomas Aquinas. He was sainted, yeah. Yeah, my my only piece of knowledge, you know, do you know how he he became sainted? You have to perform a miracle to be. Well, first he died. Yeah, first first he died, <laughs> uh, and then he was canonized, and you have to perform a miracle. And it was on his deathbed, he uh, he was near the Mediterranean uh, where he died, and he asked for herrings, which are you know uh, mostly live in the North Sea in the Atlantic. Like can't get me herrings, and then they uh, they couldn't find any herrings, so they brought in some pilchards, some uh, fish that did live in the Mediterranean. And as he was eating them, he was like, "Oh, and lo, a miracle! These pilchards are turning into herring as they're entering my mouth, and only, unfortunately, only I can experience this. Please, please put that on the record as a miracle. Um, I'd like to be canonized. Put that on my saint resume. Yeah." And then promptly died. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I was reading a little bit about him, and I think there was actually a lot of 
debate around that particular issue when the decision w- was was being made as to whether or not to um, canonize him as a saint. He also, you may not know, had terrible handwriting. Um, <laughs> so terrible that after his first handful of books, uh, people were like, sorry, like we can't transcribe this. We don't even know what you're writing. Um, and so the, the church assigned secretaries to him uh, to, to take dictation. Um, they called his, his handwriting litera inintelligent you'll be able to say this mark i won't litera inintelligibilis nice what does that mean i don't i don't get it uh, do you want me to say I it don't again speak latin what is uh, that un- unreadable <laughs> yeah what is that i can't it means unintelligible I can't writing. parse the latin oh <laughs> wow i don't know how how do you get that from the latin that's you need to study it for many many years <laughs> um his writing was described as written by someone left-handed in great haste in Latin shorthand. Take that, left-handers. <laughs> Whoever wrote that had a low opinion of left-handers. Which at that, at that point in history like was a mark of the devil. Left-handedness was evil. Yeah. Literally. In, uh, yeah. Le- well, he wasn't actually left-handed. He just wrote like someone who, who was left-handed. Yeah. No, I mean, if he was actually left-handed, they would have just killed him. Maybe he was left-handed, and that was just his shitty right-handed writing. The, the, the Latin, the, the, going back to the Latin, the Latin for left-handedness is actually the word sinister. Mm. Yeah, right-handed was uh, was Dexter, Dexter and sinister. Interesting. Do you want to know what Thomas Aquinas' nickname was at the Paris University? Tommy? Tommy A? <laughs> Stretch? Close. The dumb ox. He was a big guy, wasn't he? <laughs> he was a big guy, yeah. Okay, well, so I think, um, you know, thanks for uh, turning us on to the DDE, John H. from New York. Uh, because you didn't actually pose a question, I'm going to consider Oh, it. oh. What? Well, well I, I was just going to say, uh, uh, speaking of the DDE again, the DDT, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed that I didn't know this off the top of my head now. It was Jake the Snake Roberts' move, uh, uh, the DDT, which, yeah. which no one apparently knew what it stood for uh and there were a bunch of of guesses it was kind of legendary it might have stood for drop dead twice it might have <laughs> yeah. stood for demonic death trap or <laughs> damien's death touch or drop downtown or death drop technique wow uh, did jake the snake ever clarify that uh no he he, he never did uh his, his his snake which which he was named after uh, or, or named for for having and bringing into the ring all the time. You know, looking back, I don't know why Peta didn't storm the ring every time that dude brought like a clearly drugged giant python into the <laughs> ring. But well, that was a little bit before Peta's heyday. Yeah, his, his name, his snake's name was Damien. So the the other the other guess here for what DDT oh. DDT stood for is Damien's dinner time. <laughs> oh, that's going to be in the running like for a title as well. I, I can foresee. <laughs> Those are the two questions I think we had in the mailbag. Is there is there anything else? We've never done a mailbag show before. Is there a mid-show break during one of these episodes? Yeah, why not? All right, mid-show break. Hey, everyone. We just wanted to take a minute and thank you all for listening and give a special thanks to those of you who took the time to send us questions. 
If you want to be part of the show, you can send us your questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for show topics. Just search for You've Got It All Wrong on Facebook or find us on Twitter at All Wrong Podcast or get at us on email. Our address is questions at you've got it all wrong.net. All right, back to the show. And we're back. Okay, uh, this last question is a, a bit of a curveball. Um, it comes to us from uh, uh, Mrs. Terry Allen of Michigan, uh, a.k.a. Mrs. Allen, a.k.a. Chad and Paco's mom. Uh, she writes... Oh, I didn't see this one. Yeah, she writes, uh, why do you have to use the F word so much on the show? H- how would you guys like to respond <laughs> to that? Did she like write that question directly to you? Uh, it was quite pointed. Um, she knew she knew I could get you. Yeah. Here. Do we say f- a lot on the show? Well, God, you just did. <laughs> I mean, oh, you but you're gonna bleep it out, right? Yeah, I'll bleep it out. I'll bleep that out. I'll bleep all the swear words out of this episode. And mom, I love you, and I'm sorry. And from here on out, I promise the show will be clean. You know, there's a lot of comedians out there, and uh, 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 Sinbad um, once said, if if you can't do clean comedy, you can't do comedy. You can do clean comedy, and you can do dirty comedy, but if you can only do dirty comedy, you can't do comedy. you got to be able to do clean comedy. Yeah. I think the same goes for philosophy podcasts, you know? like <laughs> you got to be able to do clean philosophy podcasts. Uh, I think we've proven we can do dirty philosophy podcasts, but... We we won't know for sure if we can really do this podcast unless we can do it clean. So I'm committing from from this day forth to do clean philosophy podcast. Hallelujah. Okay. Well, I'll do it for mom. Mom, this is all right. Uh, yeah. No, go ahead. No, whatever. I was just going to say, say something, something to, mom. to mom. Well, you know what? Mom's probably not listening anyway. So whatever. She probably listened to the first episode, and I swore a lot, and then she was like, "Forget it." Mom, I love you, and you've always known this, but I'm a better son than Chad. <laughs> I know you're listening out there. That's <laughs> bull. <laughs> uh, I did do some research into swearing and oh. why we swear and the behavior of swearing. And while swearing might not make your podcasting better, I mean, I definitely didn't find any scientific studies on how swearing makes your podcasting better, which I was really hoping to find. But what I did find is that swearing increases your pain tolerance. Really? And they've done studies where they've had people, they've had two groups uh, put their hands into ice water. Uh-huh. And see how long they can keep their hands in the ice water. <laughs> and they instructed they instructed one group to say shoot if they needed if they needed to express pain or or deal with this discomfort they said say shoot. And then they yeah. told the other group um to say the curse word version of that. Yeah. Which I can't say because this is now a clean podcast. And the group that was able to say the curse word version of that uh, endured the ice water much much longer. Yeah, mm. there's a, there's a great documentary by uh, the uh, English actor Stephen Fry where he actually does a, a test of this uh, on a documentary series called um, Planet Word, where he travels around the world and investigates the background and uses of language and, and words. And he does a test um, with the ice uh, bowl of water and the actor uh, Brian Blessed. 
who played uh, the Hawkman in Flash Gordon from the 80s, if you remember uh, that that fellow. Oh, yeah. Gordon's alive! Yeah. That was his uh, big line. And uh, <laughs> apparently uh, Brian Blessed can, can swear continuously without repeating himself for a solid 15 minutes. So he had uh, he had quite a lot of material what? to work on. Huh, that's amazing. Well, we, he definitely can't come on this podcast. <laughs> I'll make sure to, to stop him at the door. <laughs> yeah. The average person uh, swears about 0.7% of all the words they use in the course of the day are swear words. That ranges from 0%, like all of our podcasts moving forward, to 3%. Huh. I would have thought higher. Is this like English speakers or... American, North Americans, no, no, that's, or what's that? That's that's all all languages. All languages, huh? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you have anything else? Uh, yeah, in the medieval era, yeah, cursing um, the the type of cursing that we would t- we would describe as as oath cursing, like uh, you know, taking a a holy person's name in vain. Yeah. Uh, in the medieval era, those types of curses were thought to physically injured jesus christ huh wow that's rough <laughs> uh okay uh was that belief accurate uh well i don't know how you <laughs> test that but uh, yeah fair enough um the the middle class typically uses less profanity than the lower class and the upper class hmm. huh so like rich people swear more uh well uh rich people and 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 quote unquote lower class people swear more because the the middle class is striving to become upper class so they right. they have something to prove and they have to be uh upstanding and professional and and uh obey a certain kind of code of conduct uh the upper class i mean they've made it so f- it yeah <laughs> they can say whatever they want <laughs> wait i i thought this is going to be a clean podcast yeah that was beeped out <laughs> Oh, okay. Uh, so that's all I've got on cursing and swearing, uh, other than repeating my solemn oath to my mom that I won't swear on this podcast anymore. We love you, Mrs. Allen. Okay, yeah. Unless our unless unless our ratings drop really badly, and then f- it, I'm going to start swearing like a. M- yeah, we're going to go right back to all of that fucking <laughs> bull. Uh, okay, <laughs> sounds good. Uh, I've also I, I've also seen. Um, some stuff on how the idea of beeping out words, even when you're not beeping out curse words, uh, like increases the the humor of a piece of content. Oh, you've seen those videos from Kimmel, right? You know what? We're going to have to just like have made up swear words that we say, and you can beep them out. And that way we're keeping our promise to our mom and we're making the show funnier. Like uh, Battlestar Galactica, we're going to have to make up some terrible word like <laughs> Right. Shazbat. <laughs> or cuss. Ugh. That was the worst move of that show. That show would have been so much better if they just decided to not make up space swearing. How about uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox? Do you remember that? Yeah, that's where I'm getting yeah, at you, with the cuss. You, you cussing yeah. at me? What the cuss? Don't cuss with me. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely recommend the uh, the uh, uh, reoccurring bit on Jimmy Kibble Live, the unnecessary censorship videos where words that aren't swear words uh, are beeped out, which only makes them funnier. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that's it. Are we done? I think so. I'm done. Are you done? I'm done. Mark, are you done? I am done. Okay, well, I think that wraps it up then. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. We honestly can't thank you enough. The show is doing pretty well so far. We've been bouncing around on the new and noteworthy charts on iTunes, and it's all due to the support you guys have shown. But that doesn't mean we're going to stop asking for it. If you haven't rated the show yet, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to the show and give us a rating or review. Make sure that you're subscribed to the show so that you don't miss an episode. This also really helps us stay on the charts so more listeners discover us. And if you know someone you think would like the show, go ahead and share it with them. Sharing is caring. Pick your favorite episode and send them a link to it. Or we've got this nice little sampler on YouTube. Just search for You've Got It All Wrong on YouTube. Grab that URL or hit the share button and send it along. They'll thank you. We'll thank you. It'll be like that Pay It Forward movie with the kid from the only good movie M. Night Shyamalan ever made. I don't know. Maybe not. I've never seen it. But share the show anyways. We'll see you next week. <laughs>